Well, good morning. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here and to share with you. I'm glad and thankful that Dean um, asked if I could share and a little bit about Sin Relief and, and also preach this morning. Um, I'm Josh Benton. We've been at Midway now for a few months. Uh, uh, my family sitting back there, my wife Emily, um, our oldest Silas, and then Daniel and Karis, and the one that most of you have probably met, Thomas, um, who is no stranger to anyone. He makes himself known. He's three. Um, and so if um, uh, there's usually a, a ruckus or a loud noise somewhere, it's usually his responsibility. Um, so um, We've had an opportunity to meet many of you over the past um, few months, and we're just thankful for Midway. Just start with that. Um, it's, um, uh, we're thankful for the way that uh, Dean points us to the feet of the cross every Sunday, and we're thankful for the way that um, there's small groups Sunday morning to focus on discipleship and, and, and training and equipping. We're thankful for opportunities to serve and for the way that you send uh, people even over the last few weeks all over the world uh, to share the gospel. So um, this, in this last couple of years when we moved from Kentucky to Georgia has been a challenging one for us and we are grateful for the way you've welcomed us and just very thankful for that. Um, as the... The video said I have the opportunity to work at a place called Sin Relief. And just to share a little bit about Sin Relief um, with you this morning. Um, is that up there? There we go. Um, as the video said, the Sin Relief is a, it's a, the first partnership, if you're familiar with um, anything in the, the Southern Baptist Convention, there's an international mission board and a North American mission board. And Sin Relief is the first partnership ministry of the two working collaboratively together. And so um, there, as you see, our responsibility is to using the Great Commission as our motivation to um, have ministries of compassion go out throughout the world. And so I'll share a little bit about what some of those ministries are and, and how we work with churches all over the country. So we work in five areas, as it pointed out in, in the video, and they're listed up here now. So strengthen communities. So um, we work, whether it's in the U.S. or in another country, um, to help with issues around poverty, education, healthcare, um, all over the world, um, and to help not just those communities, but to help churches engage and to help connect churches to those needs so that the churches can help meet those needs, but also so that the gospel can be proclaimed and that the people that they're ministering to uh, can be uh, better integrated and, and involved in a church. Uh, the second is care for refugees. And so right now in the world, there are 100 million displaced people. And so those people are displaced primarily for two reasons. One, because of religious persecution or for political persecution. And so you see the, the countries that, you know, Ukraine and Afghanistan specifically at the moment, um, but other countries in the world where there's a significant amount of displacement going on right now, Myanmar uh, in, in East Asia, um, Venezuela in South America, Cuba, South Sudan, uh, Somalia. Those are the countries where... Um, rapid persecution is taking place. 
And um, obviously some of that's because of war or the fall of governments, but the majority is because of religious persecution. And so um, whether it be in Venezuela, whether it be in Sudan, Somalia in particular, um, in many cases, Christians are fleeing um, to try to find safety and, and a, a place uh, to remove them from that situation. Um, protect families or protect children and families. And this runs the gamut of um, crisis pregnancy uh, to adoption. Uh, that we work with ministries and have ministries that, that help in those ways. And obviously, that's never been more important um, than it is right now. Uh, we are thankful, obviously, for the court's ruling, but we hopefully are not fooled that that's the end of things or the solution, is that you know, the, the primary need for anyone, the, 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 the primary cause of brokenness is separation from Christ. And the only way to find restoration is through Christ. And so our ministries um, focus on you know, helping at-risk mothers, at-risk families, for those that cannot stay with their biological families, helping um, equip foster parents and adoptive parents as well. And even with the decision, um, you know, in the United States right now, there are over 100,000 foster kids that go unplaced in a family in the United States every year. Um, with the Roe decision, there's a potential that that increases dramatically. And so as the church, we want to be prepared for that. So we help equip the church uh, to care for foster families, foster kids, vulnerable families in their communities. We primarily do that through something called family advocacy ministries um, that help churches develop ministry to care for vulnerable families and care for families that are fostering and adopting. Uh, the other is fighting human trafficking. And so modern day slavery, whether that is in Thailand, uh, whether that is in New Orleans or Las Vegas or here in Atlanta, um, that we have ministries that provide care and support to victims of trafficking, and then responding to crisis. So that's everything from a natural disaster to helping churches in Uvalde, Texas, respond to the crisis that's happened in their community. Um, where we do that work in the United States, or excuse me, first uh, here internationally, um, we have missionaries, um, and partners all over the world that are doing things that I just described every day. And it is all in partnership with the local church. Uh, so right now, obviously, um, the refugee situation in Ukraine um, that's impacting the whole of Europe is that we are helping support local churches in Eastern Europe, churches that were started by refugees fleeing, fleeing the Soviet Union over 30 years ago are now at the, the epicenter and the primary responders to helping Ukrainians that are be, being displaced. And we do that all over the world to um, refugee camps in Venezuela, um, to water and agriculture projects in Africa and in India and, and, and throughout Asia um, and South America. And so it's great work being done by our international team. And then nationally, um, we primarily do that through ministry centers all over the United States. And so these are places where churches can go on mission and they can participate 
and work alongside missionaries in these cities um, all over North America. Um, but the whole goal of those mission trips are to help partner with the missionaries, yes, but to equip the church to come home and do that type of ministry where they are. And so we have missionaries that come alongside churches to equip them, develop ministry, understand the needs of their community, uh, and ultimately use that ministry to proclaim the gospel um, to those that they're serving. And so I'm thankful for, one, Midway's support um, of Send Relief, especially over the past um, several weeks and months um, that you all have been very generous in giving to uh, the Ukraine response in particular. And so um, I'm grateful for that on behalf of Send Relief and our missionaries that are responding to those needs throughout Europe. So thank you for that. And we'll move now, if you will, uh, to the book of Acts. Um, And, you know, one of the, um, you know, the, the, the roles that we have at Send Relief will be in Acts chapter 11, is to help equip the church to fulfill the Great Commission. And, and at the end of Acts chapter 11, we see a church, the first Gentile church in Antioch become established. And we see that God provides a, through scripture, some fundamentals for how the church fulfills the Great Commission. And so we'll be reading starting in verse 19 of chapter 11. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, And a great many of people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for this time. We're grateful that we can come together and gather and hear your word proclaimed through songs. Your word has already been declared this morning through the songs that we have sung, and we are thankful for that. We are thankful that we can worship you, that you're a God that, uh, that you're a God that we can come before and, and lift up our voices in praise. And we're also thankful for your word. As, and we're thankful that it stands in authority over everything that we do. I pray that your word this morning 
would continue to change our hearts and our minds and help us to understand more of who you are. We pray for those who may not know you, that that you would move in their hearts and draw them to yourself. In Christ's name, amen. So I think some context um, of of what's going on in Antioch is uh, is a good thing. So as you read this in, in verse 19, you see quickly that there was a scattering of the church in Jerusalem because of the persecution of Stephen. So just to put some timeline around this, depending upon the, the calendar or the, 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 the timeline that you may use, you know, Jesus ascended somewhere between the year 30 and 33 AD. That for the, to not, we'll just use those general time frames for everybody because there's a lot of different thoughts on that based upon the, the calendar. Stephen was stoned for sharing the gospel and, and martyred about a year or so after Jesus ascended. After that, if you look back at Acts chapter eight, the beginning of Acts chapter eight, it says that there was a great persecution that arose and the Christians, the followers of Christ in Jerusalem were scattered. And they went into other parts of the world, specifically Judea and Samaria, and and they shared the gospel when they went. However, there was not yet a, a, an operational plan to fulfill the Great Commission by the church. What's happening here in Antioch is about 10 years after Stephen was martyred, that you're seeing the first Gentile church come to bear. And so up until that point, when they were, the Christians were still considered to be a sect of Judaism. And so when they went to other places, they primarily told other Jews about Jesus. And you see that here in verse 19, is that when they left as they scattered, we're picking up this story again of, of those who were scattered after Stephen's persecution, is that they were traveling to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and it says, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And so they were going into synagogues and they were proclaiming the gospel. Now we know in some passages before this happens in Acts is that there was just, if you, if you look up in, in chapters 10 and 11, is the dream of when Peter um, was, when the Lord made known to him that the gospel could be taken to the Gentiles. He's encouraging him this. And then a Roman centurion, or Cornelius, uh, is the first Gentile, we believe, that's on record. There's some discussion about the Ethiopian eunuch a few chapters earlier, but Cornelius being the first Gentile to come to know Christ. And so here they are in Antioch. It it was not the church policy and plan that believers in Jesus could just be believers in Jesus and not Jews first. The council on Jerusalem that makes that clear doesn't happen for five more years. And so what you're seeing right here in Antioch is really transformational in the early church. It's, you're seeing Gentiles come to know Christ. And so in verses 20 and 21, just some some interesting things 
to, to point out here. I'll just reread some of this. It says in verse 20, but there were some of them. I'll stop there. And I think this is something that's passed over quite a bit, some of them. Okay, so these were believers, Jewish believers who had been scattered and we don't know their names, but this group, some of them are the planters of the first Gentile church. We don't know who they are, but we know they were faithful to the gospel and were sharing the gospel. And it says, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, whom on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Hellenists means Greeks or Gentiles. And so they began coming out of the mold, if you will. And they went directly to Gentiles and began to preach the gospel. And what happened there was that, it says in verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So this is really quite an amazing turn of events here. It's a significant transition in Christian history is that a a significant number of Gentiles, non-Jews, came to know Christ. And it's clear here that Luke points out, you know, Luke, the, the historian, the doctor, the great giver of details, does not give us the name of the people who, who were the ones behind this, but they were faithful to the gospel, they preached the gospel, and many came to know the Lord. Now, as we, before we move out of the context, there's some, I think, some points here to take away. Because after this, we really start to see the formation of the church become established. And one, in verse 19, we see that God uses difficulties to grow our faith and obedience. The people, the men who were preaching and teaching were experiencing great persecution. They were away from their home. They didn't have protection but they still were faithful to the call of Christ and shared the gospel. I think that's an important thing for us to recognize, especially as the American church, who we desire things that are good and things that we should desire, like religious liberty, like you know, protections under the law and, and freedoms to, of, of religion. We hold those things to be valuable, but it's also important for us to realize that we shouldn't use that as a crutch because God doesn't need those things to grow his kingdom. And we see that here in the book of Acts. Their lives were on the line. You see that throughout the persecuted church all over the world. They have no protection and the kingdom of God grows and many come to know him as savior. It's good to have those things that we have, the freedoms that we enjoy, but let it not make us comfortable. And let us not forget that we, we don't need those things. We should desire them and they're good things, but let us remember that we don't need them. That is not our primary objective. Our primary objective is sharing the gospel so others can know him. And we see that clearly here by the early church in Antioch. We also see in verse 20 that God uses the ordinary. That some of them statement. And 
you know, in, in our culture today, and unfortunately this is in Christian culture as well, we live in the age of social media, of influencers, of all of these things, of people being platformed, thinking that that is the, the methodology that we must be known so that Christ can be known. This some of them statement shows us God can use anyone. That he can use anyone he chooses, any of his followers to do whatever he pleases. And he does that here. And the most influential church in the, in the first and second century was founded. So let us not look at our own disqualifications, if you will, our own liabilities of our personalities and our abilities, or that we don't have the ability to reach a certain group of people to think that that somehow limits God. It didn't limit the church in Antioch. And then our circumstances don't limit God's plan. Again, the circumstances of those early Christians was they were living under persecution. They were living under persecution of the Jews. They were also living under persecution of the Romans. But they still proclaim the gospel. And all of those things that we mentioned earlier that sometimes can you know, be a crutch to us or think that we are the most important thing, look at verse 21 and what it says here at the beginning of verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. That is what they needed to establish the church in Antioch and for people to know was the hand of the Lord. And it reminds me back in Joshua chapter five before Joshua is going into Jericho and the commander of the Lord's army comes and Joshua says, are you on our side? And essentially the commander of the army says, you're asking the wrong question. You should be asking if you're on God's. And that's what's happening here is that the church in Antioch was established and they received favor and the hand of God was with them because they were following God. They were faithful and that they were obedient to even something that they weren't even being told to do yet. But we can assume that the the church in Jerusalem was aware of the Great Commission, that they were told to go and take the gospel to the nations. And the church in Antioch was doing that very thing, even though it was not part of their church tradition at the time. They followed scripture over their tradition. And that is an important thing for us to be reminded of. But now as we look at the formation of the church, you know, in looking, that takes place in verses 22 and 24, that early formation. So, Word gets back to Jerusalem. We don't know how long this took. And I think two things happened. I think that we can glean from this is that they were concerned. They were concerned because, hey, Gentiles are coming to know Christ, but they're not becoming Jews. We need to go send somebody to check on that. And I think we can look poorly on the Jerusalem church for this because, you know, I think in our own nature, we say, well, the church in Jerusalem got mad because the church in Antioch wasn't following the rules that we put in place. And maybe that's part of it. But what they also wanted to do was to confirm that there was true salvation and transformation taking place. So they send Barnabas. And Barnabas 
is, a, is just a phenomenal, kind of a, a secondary player in the, in the New Testament narrative. But he is so involved and he runs through so many different things. And there's some things we can learn about Barnabas. He was sent, obviously, because he was trusted by the, the Jerusalem church. So he must have been a godly, theologically sound man. But we also learn that he's reasonable. Is that he goes to Antioch to confirm that these salvations are taking place. And look what it says here in verses 22 and 23. It says, the report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So what he witnessed was there was transformation within the, the people of Antioch. That even though they did not come from a Jewish background, they did not, there's no indication here that they, um, they believed, but before they believed, they became circumcised and be, followed all the, the Jewish rituals. There's no indication of that here. But what Barnabas saw was spiritual transformation. And if we want to know what that looks like, just quickly flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because I think it's easy for us to gloss over what spiritual transformation would have looked like in the early church period in the, the Greco-Roman world. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, gives us an indication of what the Greco-Roman Hellenistic culture looked like. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verses 9 through 11... It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, not the greedy, nor drunkards, not revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. Barnabas knew what the Roman culture looked like. But when he went to Antioch, that's not what he saw. He saw transformed people serving and worshiping God. He saw changed people. They did not have cultural Christianity in Antioch like we have in Georgia. There weren't people, there was no reason to fake being a Christian in Antioch. And so if you were not a Christian, it was on full display. And what Barnabas saw were people who had been transformed by the gospel. And this is important for us on a, on a couple of, of things. One, as a church, we do have a responsibility to confirm when someone says they have come to know Christ. That is an important part of a church's responsibility, is that we need, to, there should be evidence of salvation. Now it doesn't have, it's not Paul on the Damascus road necessarily, but we should see evidence of salvation in people who claim to, to, to be a Christian. And that's what Barnabas did here. 
And not only that, he then, it tells us in, in the remainder of verse 24, is that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit and he started encouraging them and discipling them right there. But we get a sense that the job was bigger than what Barnabas could just do. So what he does, it tells us in 25 and 26, it says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus looking for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year and they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So again, this is several years after Paul was radically saved on the road to Damascus. He's in Tarsus. He's not on his missionary journeys yet. And Barnabas, again, being aware of Paul's salvation and how dramatic that was he knows that the call of Paul's life was to go take the gospel to the Gentiles and he goes and gets him and he brings him back and it says for an entire year Paul and Barnabas equipped and discipled the church in Antioch and again the transformation and the sanctification continue to take place because their identity changes as we see at the, verse, at the end of verse 26, is that it says in Antioch they were first called Christians. That discipleship led to a, a group of Christians following Christ, living differently, engaging their community different, having different standards of morality, and understanding that it is Christ and his spirit that changes and transform, transforms people, not religious law and requirements. And so they were there being discipled, but it is also, as we'll find out in a second, it was a, that time of discipleship was also when God was equipping Paul and Barnabas because it was a training ground for Paul and Barnabas to begin taking the gospel into Gentile places. And then in verses 27 through 30, the church in Jerusalem comes back. They come back because there's a need. They've heard, they've heard the reports of the growth in the church of Antioch and they come back and they say, God has revealed to us that there is going to be a famine throughout Judea and all over the known world. We need help. And we don't know anything about the socioeconomic status of the church in Antioch, but what we do know is that they, under the compassion of Christ, they generously gave. That they saw a need that could help strengthen a church and churches throughout a region, and they gave to it so that it could meet the needs of the church in Jerusalem. So we see a church that is maturing, who is generous and compassionate. And both of these things reflect the characteristics of Christ, that we serve a God who is generous, even with his own son. And that spirit that dwells in us as followers of him transforms us to be Christ-like. And generosity and compassion and serving others are a part of that transformation of a Christian. And so what's interesting here. We see a church under its formation. The gospel was proclaimed. People were discipled. They matured. They began to serve. But the story of Antioch doesn't end there. And if you just flip over here to chapter 13. 
Sometime later, you know, back in Jerusalem, the apostle James is beheaded and Peter is imprisoned. He has a dramatic rescue. Herod Antipas dies. And what is happening in Antioch is that starting in verse 13, it says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and they sent them off. So a mature church proclaims the gospel, it disciples those who believe, it serves others and it sins. Here you see the two most mature believers in the church in Antioch being sent. The church in Antioch could have been selfish. He said, no, these guys really know their stuff. We'd like to keep them here. But they didn't. God revealed that calling and they sent them. And we know as we read the rest of the book of Acts in the New Testament as that Paul and Barnabas go on a missionary journey. They have some disagreements. They separate. They continue going individually with other groups on missionary journeys and essentially are are responsible for establishing the early church throughout Greece and and, and Turkey and Asia and, and all of those places today. And so just some takeaways that that we can learn from this. is that God's kingdom, as I've said, is not limited to our circumstances. Is that no matter what our circumstances are, and it's amazing that we sung about this this morning, is that God desires our faithful obedience. No matter what our personal circumstances are, whether it's good or bad or challenging, whether what our cultural circumstances are, God desires us to be faithful. He desires for us to tell others about Christ, to care for others, to, proc- to disciple others, and to send others. We also see in Antioch that that church kind of sets the standard for the church. So things that we should care about. One is to proclaim the gospel. That that is a primary responsibility that God gives the church that it should be the herald of the gospel wherever it is placed. The church should also disciple its members. It should teach them what it means to follow Christ. It should teach them uh, what, um, from a personal perspective, what it means to follow Christ, but what it also means to live in community with other believers. Then a mature church also serves with compassion. They give to needs. They get involved with needs, all for the purpose of strengthening the church and so that others can come to know him. And then a mature church sends people to other places to share the gospel. Antioch 
Even though the Great Commission was not yet operational within the early church, Antioch becomes a picture of the Great Commission. It shows the rest of us 2,000 years later what the church should look like. It was the hub of church and missional activity for several hundred years after its founding. And the truth that it proclaimed and the, the principles and the framework, the biblical principles and the framework that it followed are still for us to follow today. This passage also tells us one more thing, that the gospel saves and transforms. It saves us one, from our sin into a personal relationship with God through Christ. But then it also calls us into community. It calls us into a fellowship, a church. A notion that we just need to believe in Jesus and go with it alone is not a biblical notion. Scripture calls us into community and the church in Antioch shows that. It calls us into community to be discipled, to equip us and to care for each other and for others. So I hope that we take great encouragement from the church in Antioch, that we realize that our number one priority, no matter what our circumstance is, is to be faithful because God is faithful and we are called to be faithful to him. That we should be a church midway and then as Dan talked about earlier with other churches, a church that proclaims, disciples, serves, and sins. And that our primary objective is to share the gospel so that it can save and transform. So this morning, I think there's, as we come to a time to respond, there's three ways that we can respond this morning. One is that Maybe some of us in here don't know Christ and that there's a stirring in your heart to know him. The opportunity to respond in that way is here, to come and to give your life to Christ. The second is to be a part of a church, to be a part of a community, to join a church family and to be a part of that proclaiming, discipling, serving and sending because it happens here at Midway. It's been a great encouragement to us as we have joined this community to see how it does those things. And then maybe some of us in here are feeling called, are wrestling with a call of ministry or mission. There's no better way to work out that call than through prayer and, to, and to helping, let, allowing your church to come alongside you to work that out. So as we close this morning, if you need to respond, we have an invitation here in a moment. I encourage you to do so. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for you. We're grateful that you are a sovereign God, full of grace, that you extend to us so that we can know you and have our sins forgiven and be transformed into your likeness. I pray that you would continue to move in this body of believers, that you would equip us to proclaim your gospel, to disciple each other, to serve others, and to send each other out, that we would take 
the example of the church in Antioch and do those things actively. We're grateful that we can serve you and worship you. I pray for this invitation that it would honor and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen.